I think um, empathy is the process by which all of our questions become quite easy to answer. Stand by, I'll be right there. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 362. Today is the 1st of March 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this episode. And please don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. This week's interview is with Tom Goodwin. Tom is Head of Futures and Insights at the Publicis Group Worldwide. He's the author of Digital Darwinism and is also a top influencer in marketing and LinkedIn with over 700,000 followers. In this conversation with Tom, we discuss some of the biggest challenges for marketers and how to overcome them, emerging trends in marketing and how to take advantage of them, as well as a look at the different available tools for marketers to stay ahead of the curve. Tom Goodwin, great to have you back on the show. It's been, um, this is our third third visit together on my show. You were 2014, 2018, and you're I'm now- I'm going to Sorry? <laughs> Sorry, I messed that up. It's always hard to know when to chip in. Um, so feel free to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to give you a little bit of an intro. Let me start <laughs> over. I'll start over again, and, and I can, I'll make you a trip here. Hey, Tom Goodwin, great to have you back on the show. A third time repeat offender. You're now based in New York, head of futures and insight at Publicis Group, a group I obviously know very well. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, what are you up to? You wrote your book, Digital Darwinism. You are the head, top marketing influencer on LinkedIn. Congrats. You, you're really, you know, you, you're leading a whole wave of people in the marketing revolution. So tell us in your own words what you're up to. Goodness me. Um, that's very kind of you to say that. Um, I think what I'm up to is I'm trying to get people talking about change. Um, there are lots of people that make very proud declaration about how the world is changing faster than ever or how 5G or AI will change everything. Uh, and I'm trying to be a kind of wide, thin layer um, that has conversations about what's changing, what's not, what matters, what doesn't, uh, with a view to then advising people about that. So I do a lot of work, obviously, for publicists. It's looking at how the, um, our, our clients need advice in different ways. It's having different types of conversations with our clients. It's then actually trying to put into practice some ideas that happen as a result of this. So if we accept that customer service is more important than ever, if we accept that um, there's now more data than ever before and greater data processing capabilities, then how can we use that to serve customers better? So it's a mixture of kind of thinking and doing and making and listening and talking and traveling. Uh, and as part of that kind of uh, exercise routine, um, I then kind of, uh, it manifests itself into different ways, everything from writing columns to speaking at events around the world to running workshops to trying to help with their own transformation, the publicists, um, and then also finally occasionally writing a book. <laughs> when, when you do this, I mean, do you, do you feel like, as we were talking just before the recording, that you are throwing stuff out there sometimes to see how it lands like a comedian at a at a small little um you know l laughing spot yeah um like no one really knows this because uh, i was advised not to talk about the process but when i wrote my first book it was it was based on a very unusual 
uh, almost like diamond-like principles. So most people, when they write a book, they uh, write the book and then they might write some articles from the book and then they might promote those articles on social media. And the idea is you almost form this kind of like uh, triangle-like structure where your book disseminates. But I, um, un unwittingly, my other book, uh, my first book was written by me doing various tweets, um, seeing what kind of resonated with people, seeing what um, got people talking, seeing where I was wrong, but there was something interesting to explore. Um, and then often when a tweet or a, a kind of status update on LinkedIn would do well, I'd then use that to write an article based on on the knowledge that that was interesting and provocative to people. Um, and then after about two years of writing articles, I'd I realized I'd written about 300 pieces. Um, and when I was asked to write a book, I thought, actually, you know, there's something interesting in these articles. So it was never a compendium of those articles, but the kind of narrative was somewhat formed by it. Some of the chapters were kind of uh, various different articles smushed together. Um, so it's very interesting how social media can help in the process of, of writing a book. And it, it's easy for people to think that I'm a kind of troll because if you write something with a view to uh, drive engagement, and if you write something in the hope that people will correct you and tell you that you're wrong, Mm. Or write something because you're trying to tap into expertise and knowledge out there. And I think people misunderstand your intentions and they think you're just being annoying or, or trying to flame people. And actually, it was driven by this real want for conversation. And in the way you use social media, because most or, you know, basically the, the narrative out there is that social media is 98% crap. I can imagine that LinkedIn, for a number of reasons, <laughs> provides a more qualitative feedback to you as opposed to Twitter. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I uh, it, It's always um, fascinating to me how many people moan about their Twitter feeds because I can look on my Twitter feed at any moment in time and it's just wonderful stuff. I, mean, well, I agree uh, with you. Yeah, and um, I think it's it's not down to me. And, and I mean, I've spent a lot of time following people and deciding who to unfollow and filtering various terms. Um, it's not really down to Twitter. It's just down to the remarkable brains and the wonderful generosity of spirit that there is out there. Um, LinkedIn always feels like a very different party to me. So it's obviously kind of full of the self-promotions and there's um, quite a lot of empty content. But I, I do find if I write about something specific, um, the, the, the degree to which the platform is linked to people's, um, professional reputations does mean that people tend to behave themselves quite well. Mm. So if I want to write something saying, you know, I'm not sure that blockchain was that big a deal. Um, you know, give me some example, you know, I'd love to hear examples of, um, processes or companies or countries where they've used it effectively. Then sure enough, the head of the x road project in estonia will write a nice paragraph about how they transform their healthcare system using blockchain um and it's a delight to be able to get access to people in that way and the other thing about it is that if you write an article on or post on linkedin at least there's a, an accumulation factor where you see together in one spot and then you can perhaps copy paste and then start analyzing the words and what's being said Whereas with Twitter, it feels so much more discombobulated, much harder to follow the, the track. If you yeah. put out a, a tweet and then the tweeting goes on and the sharing and, and it's much harder to really understand what that narrative then becomes at the end. Yeah, and I think um, the kind of the, the the format of it lends itself to very rapid, short interjections, which then make everyone seem quite emotional and quite aggressive. 
So I think uh, there is the ability of a Twitter thread to quite quickly turn into some sort of competition or shouting, um, whereas LinkedIn feels much more consultative. And um, I mean, I like to think that most people have got social media wrong and that they think it's a place to talk. And I actually think the real value of, of social media comes from listening. So, you know, one's ability to put out a thought or to put out a question or to make a statement and then be corrected or to start a conversation and get other people involved in that. Um, I think it's massively underestimated as a use for these places. Yeah, providing you're going in there with the intent to listen, because, I mean, you, your, your, your style and your ability to provoke and, and create reactions then what's interesting is the obviously then people then go in and want to participate with you and then the fact that you're listening and you show listening for example you write a book you're proving it because like you said there's a lot of self-promotion and people you know want to push out like this i'm a great thinker i'm a or you know (laughs) try you know link you know click to this link yeah about me yeah um i think people always doubt my intention slightly like i'm not one of life's worriers but I think people almost think it's uh, unlikely that I really am there to learn and that's just a way to sound like I'm less uh, egocentric or something. But um, I really am. I mean, the, 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 the odd thing about my job is it is so wide that it's never going to be possible for me to know that much about everything. So of it's course. extremely um, necessary that you know a, a 5G expert from Huawei chips in, that someone who's um, being part of GDPR chips in about conversations about privacy, like um, and it, and it makes you realize like we we live in this sort of fantasy somehow that because there's data there is the truth and there are facts and it's so much the case that there's so much data that you can form any argument that it's really good to have an open forum where people can just um, chip in with their own different perspectives and you know i live a very unusual life that's based around large metropolitan areas and it's based on frequent travel and i know that i'll never really get to experience what quote-unquote normal life is and it's um it's absolutely essential for all of us that we have a chance to listen to people who see the world in a very different way because their perspective's different because you know they live in the suburbs or because they've got kids or because they're old or that there are lots of viewpoints we need to listen to Right, and the maybe the common factor you and I share, but at least I, I'm going to characterize myself, and then you see if you can <laughs> uh, find yourself in the mirror. Um, extrovert, and and as extroverts tend to be out there and and energetic about pushing out things, and and then the perception is well, especially when you are an influencer like you are, you know, your 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 words carry weight and, and mean things, so it, it's almost like. You know, there are a number of us who are, you know, out there trying to put out information. And yet the best information comes from when you are listening and really understanding what's going on. I mean, that's the only way you can really be pertinent when you put it out. Yeah. I mean, um, the introversion, extroversion conversation I find fascinating because most of my life I'm very introverted um, and I kind of force myself to behave in a different way in public places or on stage. Hmm. Um, and I actually think that introversion is massively underrated in our field because so much of so much of speaking is actually looking at how people are responding to you as you're talking. Um, so much about persuasion is actually about listening more than it is about saying magically charismatic things. So I think um, it's uh, it, it's great that we live in an era where we have these tools and these levers that allow us to behave differently in different places. And I think the only thing that really matters with these platforms is people's intentions and if people are misunderstood and uh, people are 
um, have their words twisted, then, you know, we're all human beings, we're all fallible. And um, the main thing is to try and understand what people were trying to accomplish. And it was probably a good thing. Certainly looking at intention is, is such a, an important thing. You write in your role, Tom, that you are trying to understand the changes that matter and those that don't. When you're talking with a client or, or you're observing these different trends, how do you make that distinction? I mean, how do you know an epiphenomenon phenomenon versus you know, a, a mega thing? I think uh, we, we focus so much on the technology um and especially if you are in a particular industry that has a particular technology that technology is everything to you um so if you work for a large telco you know whether it's um htsp whether it's um lte whether it's edge you know um the way the data gets you is unbelievably important as a human being you don't care you just care that you get the data and that it's fast enough um, if you work in banking, then there's all sorts of different ways to wire money around the world in different ways. But as a person, you don't care about that. And we, we tend to have a very technology-centric approach towards change. Um, it's a lot easier as a large consulting company to sell companies on technologies. A rather. new infrastructure. Yeah. You, you know, it's very hard to sell in a project saying this is going to make people feel a bit happier about your bank. It's much easier to say, you know, you need to pull out cobble and, you know, use a different form of code instead. Um, so for me, what, what I mean by what matters is what can you see to start to make a difference to how people feel, how people behave, what people buy, how they buy them. Um, and you actually realize that quite a lot of things that are really significant things, we actually don't talk about that much. Um, and many of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about are largely irrelevant when it comes to where people's behaviors really lie. Hmm. So do tell more. What are some of those things that <laughs> are, are being undervalued and, and, and which ones would you consider being overvalued or over talked about? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of a good way to express this. Um, I don't know if this is the perfect answer to that question, but this is... Uh, there can't um, be perfection. <laughs> I don't know if it's helpful. I think it might be helpful and slightly interesting. I think broadly speaking, um, I mean, I'm very lucky in that I'm about 41 years old. So the internet and what we think of as a kind of modern technology landscape came into my life at university. So I can just about remember life before universe, uh, before the internet. And I can certainly remember how it changed things. And I can remember the feelings. Um, and broadly speaking, we've had this kind of huge wave of new possibilities and completely changed business dynamics and all sorts of things like consumers being in control more and customer service being more important. We've had whole waves of things like globalization, which we don't really talk about that much anymore because it seems like it happened quite a long time ago, but it's still um, a kind of force of change at the moment. Um, and then that leads to all sorts of things like a more casual labor force. It leads to um, generational divides in what they expect from their careers and so forth. And we've had all of this kind of change happen about 10 to 20 years ago. Um, I mean, some of it was happening eight years ago, but not that much. And my my feeling is that we still haven't really got to grips with all of that stuff yet. Like my um, my kind of hypothesis for the world right now is that we talk about the fact that the world is changing faster than ever. And I'm not entirely sure that that's really that true. Like if I think about the last three to six years, like actually not that much has changed at all. 
But what we really have is this kind of uh, friction that's built up. Like it's a bit like tectonic plates where the kind of technology world has moved and the commercial world has moved uh, and kind of culture and society have almost moved in the other direction. And actually the plates have not slipped yet. So there's just this huge kind of energy that's kind of building up there that should be leading us to, to us leading radically different lives. Like we should be questioning ourselves about the notion of marriage or we should be rethinking education. We should be um, challenging many of our conventions about what we want in life because our expectations could now be different. But we haven't really got around to that process yet. And I think um, that for me is the fascinating thing. It's to see these moments of friction. It's to see the kids that are disappointed because a TV ad comes on and they don't really understand what it is. It's to see um, other kids that are being told off for reading the New York Times on their iPad because it's a digital screen. Um, it's people who are not entirely sure if they can leave their job yet because in the old world to leave a job in less than two years was considered a bad thing. Um, so all of all of this kind of tension and uh, uncertainty and a, and a large degree of lostness. I think I think that's what I feel at the moment, and that's what I'm keen to explore. Hmm. Sitting in and, and just uh, digesting what you just said. So, <laughs> at the one hand, you know, you're, you're, there's this thought that things haven't changed, and and uh, and I was wondering what would be an indicator that shows you. I, in my mind, for example, I think of retail boutiques, yeah. and on the high street in London, how often you know, oh, it's not going well, and rents are going up, and shops are closing. And, and for me, the indicator is, well, how much has the retail experience really changed? Yes, every once in a while, every blue moon, there's this amazing experience. You know, let's say, quote unquote, Burberry or whomever tries to do something. But for the rest, you got, for me, salespeople who are underpaid, unmotivated, providing crap service and looking exactly like the store next door. Yeah. So that's no. my example. Do you have one or, or how, how do you react? Uh, I see the whole world a bit like this. Um, and it, it's not to sound miserable. It's just I'm so enthusiastic about what could be done. Like I'm so aware of how magical many things could be. And I'm just always slightly aware that I don't think people have really kind of got to grips with what this technology means and what this, these behaviors mean and the kind of opportunities that's created. So even if we just take something like your physical store example, um, you know, no one in retail would argue that the internet is not a is not a mm. big thing. And you know, every single large high street retailer, whether unit economics makes sense, and not people like Primark, but any any kind of mid to premium brand now obviously has their own uh, e commerce sites. But at no point has anyone then gone through and thought, well, maybe that means that we should change the physical store a bit. Um, so for me, most physical retailers are, are now totally bizarre in that somehow they think that they should kind of hide all the clothes in different places around the store. Now, from years of shopping online, I now expect to be able to find a kind of white T-shirt and then compare it with seven other white T-shirts and then only to see stuff that's going to be in my size, obviously. Um, obviously, it's expected that I can see um, the size of it, the price of it immediately. 
And then you go into a physical store and these items are kind of thrown around the place because it's presumed that you want a kind of experience. And then, you know, there's uh, 10 of one size that's put out there and only one of the other or none of others. And, you know, even when you find a pair of jeans that you fall in love with, it's impossible to reorder the same pair of jeans because the assumption is that fashion is fast and everything must change. Um, whereas actually just having a QR code that I can scan that allows me to repurchase the same item immediately would be completely game changing to me. So we've stayed there mostly on the features and benefits, the convenience factors. To what extent do you see in your in your world travels, people are wanting not just the personalization of the right size, but things like, uh, what is the purpose of this brand? What are what is the tracking and the the, the supply chain that's been used to get that white T-shirt on the shelf? Do, do you see I'm, that yeah. more delving into that, and and that should be part of the retail experience or not? Um, I think it, like someone very wisely said the other day that every answer to any question in marketing are the words it depends. Sure. Um, and you can pretty much get out of any question by saying it depends. But I think there are times in our life where we lack meaning and we want a sense of belonging. There are times in our life when we want to know more about a product and buy into it. There are times when we want friction and we want experiences. And there are also moments when we want the opposite. Um, so there are Sunday mornings where you wake up and you want to talk to a farmer about their aubergines and there are wine stores where you want to hear more about the soil. Um, but then there are also plenty of times when you're just trying to get some toilet bleach quickly. And or, you know, get, get the meal on the plate for this evening. <laughs> exactly. So I think um, we have to be careful about not making bold statements like, you know, experiences matter all the time or friction is a good or friction is a bad thing. It's, it's more about appropriateness. And I think purpose is quite similar where, um, you know, I might see purpose in a brand of shoes because shoes tend to tell you people quite a lot about you. Um, I might see green credentials in some of the household cleaning products I buy. But that doesn't mean I'm going to feel the same way about everything. Like, I don't really want my airline to be an airline that defines itself by a certain swagger. I don't really want my bank to necessarily be a bank that sort of tells other people who I am. So I think um, these things are very complex. Then when you are looking at that, because one of the things I subscribe to is differentiation that will involve personality so whether it's a bank insurance company a car company or something like this this goes beyond the features and benefits of the car but and involves as far as my perspective is concerned on the way the employees feel about it so do, do you, let's start with politics How, what's your opinion and what advice do you provide with the it depends for companies where they could or should or, or should not express a political perspective on you know something that's presumably relevant to their business. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we have massive problems in our world of marketing in that we tend to overestimate the importance that we have in people's lives. And the very weird thing about brands these days is... Um, to some extent, they're more important than ever. Like we now have more stuff than ever before. We have a lack of time. We face more choices. So the ability for me to feel that I've made a good choice with home insurance or that I'm flying on a sensible airline or that my table is not going to fall apart or that 
Um, I'm not going to get poisoned by the milk I'm drinking. Like the need for brands has never been more important. But that doesn't mean that I want a relationship with them. Um, that doesn't mean I care that much about most of these companies. Now, again, like things like purpose are very useful as an internal device. Like if you're working for an agency, it's great to feel like you belong to a group of people that have some sense of shared beliefs and shared um, attitudes. Like if you work for a bank, if you work for a supermarket, if you work for a car maker, like it's obviously important to have this feeling of a rallying cry. So I think something like purpose and mission uh, and vision is extremely important internally. But I think we overestimate the degree to which that vision matters to the outside. Um, so Apple, for example, you know, they obviously have quite a strong sense of who they are. And that is what allows them to make fantastic products that are kind of somewhat rooted in purpose and somewhat rooted in strategy. And it allows them to not make some things because they're off strategy. Um, and as a consumer, I care really about the fact that Apple makes good stuff more than why it is that they made them. Hmm. It makes me think of a lot of my work, Tom, has been recently about trying to insert empathy into organizations. And I've seen in many uh, cases of companies who are thinking about exploiting or exploring, <laughs> to be nicer, empathy <laughs> as a way to generate better sales. So, yeah. and, and so the, the issue is some, A, first of all, you don't need to tell your customers you're being empathic. You just need to do it. And, and the reality behind the, the, the cultivation of empathy is that it's more of an internal concept because it really is human to human and all the interactions together being empathic are what will create a more empathic out towards the customer. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the extraordinary things that's happened in the last 20 years is we now have become so enamored by technology and we now kind of pray at all things code and we've fallen in love with the efficiency of algorithms and we've used things like spreadsheet and data to make decisions that I think um, collectively, you know, we've almost become quite, I mean, this is quite an extreme word, but we're almost quite sociopathic. Um, I mean, I read the other day about some food delivery service where when workers were deemed to not be working hard enough, um, they were deactivated as a person. So they literally get an email saying, you have been deactivated. And it struck me as an incredible sign of the times that anyone would consider talking to a human being as if they'd been deactivated. I mean, there could be nothing that sounds less human and more robotic than that. So um, while I love the idea of huge amounts of empathy everywhere, and I think it's absolutely vital, at the moment, I would be quite happy with competence. Like, I'd, mm. I'd be quite happy with, with, <laughs> with people. Execution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, the level of disdain that companies have for our attention span and our sanity these days is extraordinary. Like, um, you know, you can buy a coffee from a coffee store and somehow your credit card detail is then used to send you a receipt, which is great. Um, and then you're signed up for a daily newsletter from a coffee shop. Like, um, I mean, I don't want to read the New York times more than once a day, let alone, um, a, an email from my coffee shop. Um, so the degree of, of sort of narcissism and strangeness that must happen for someone to think it's okay to do that is bizarre. Um, to send out emails saying we care about your experience with, um, X hotel chain, um, please tell us how it was. And then all you're given is a number between zero and 10. 
and it comes from an email address called no reply at hotelchain.com. Like clearly this is not a person that cares how their experience was. They care on mm. using you as labor um, to give them a NPS score so that someone can be bonused or not. Um, like the level of disdain that we have for human interaction where we've decided that as an industry, we're going to spend nearly a trillion dollars on marketing. So we spend nearly a trillion dollars across the whole world on telling people what to think about us and asking people to think about us. And then the moment people show any interest in us, that's called customer service. And that's not an investment, that's a cost. Um, so then we try and outsource any interest they show in us to some sort of bot or to some uh, automated mailing list. It's, um, it's an extraordinary lack of empathy that we're suffering from at the moment. So you can imagine, I agree. You're you're working for Publicis, and so not to point them out, but you know, amongst the advertisers, generally advertising is known for communicating outward and saying, "This is what we do. This is why you need to come check us out, buy our products, and so on." How how do you how would you? If, I don't suppose having a magic wand is a good idea, but how would you? advise people who are trying to still get the word out to to be effective today what, what does it take now for marketers who are who are obviously clamoring for more customers and so on to have an effective communication uh, using let's say Publicis's abilities I, mean, I think your word empathy really was um the answer to everything really i mean uh whatever industry you're in, you need to think about what it's like for a normal person to, to be dealing with that. Um, and that is a process that starts to answer all the questions that you have. Um, so if you are a company that makes, you know, salt, you need to be aware that it's probably not that likely that you need to set up a massive call center to deal with inbound inquiries about salt. Um, and it's probably not going to be that sensible for you to, engage in um you know lots of extremely rich content marketing about salt but you might want to have you know an, an effort here or there to take part in sort of a recipe process or something if you're a car company then clearly you're in a much higher interest category um if you're in a bank then you might want to be thinking about reassuring people through mechanisms like trust more than fame i think um empathy is the process by which all of our questions become quite easy to answer and I think um, I'm aware that I love working in advertising and I really enjoy all the people that I work around. Um, and I think there has been a slight change in the last 12 years where we've kind of gone from a sense of trusting our own gut and trusting our own sense of feelings to being somewhat undermined by this world of data where somehow we'll end up with data driving this process rather than empathy or imagination. So we'll end up with someone telling us that, surprise, surprise, you know, younger people are going to um, love this product more, so we need to try and make a product that suits them better. And we, we end up kind of driving a bit like Google Maps rather than a cabbie. Um, and often Google Maps is wrong, and often having a trillion dollar satellite system actually doesn't lead to the better, the, the, the best way. Often just feeling your way is actually much better. Um, so the ideal combination is, uh, sorry, the ideal world is obviously to use a nice combination of the two. So you, you are able to use your imagination and to use deep empathy and to be really driven by this innate feeling of what it's like to be human. 
But to do that with data providing you with reassurance and data providing you with objective judgment, wherever that's essential. In, in you, Tom, you shared with me some thoughts you have for a new book. And one of the phrases that I really liked was, um, I'm, I'm never, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, I'm never just, I'm never disappointed by the level of creativity um, because my expectations are basically low, but I am disappointed by the level of imagination of people. And I wanted to just circle into one other thing, which is, let's say you've got a cabbie who's, who's going to be just absolutely lovely. He, of course, London cabbie, let's say they have, they know the knowledge and, and are particularly good at getting around traffic. But let's say you have GPS and let's just imagine for a moment that it is more efficient and it knows, it will like ways, it has traffic and it gives you the best pass. The other one is a cabbie who's going to be interesting and, and maybe um, is a doctor back in his country, had to, or her country, had to migrate, emigrate, can't be a doctor because the codes aren't the same. So I'm, she's, she is now a doctor driving you. And the conversation is about how, uh, you know, this and this type of service has changed in the healthcare. And all of a sudden you're having this other conversation. You arrive at the place five and a half minutes later, but you've had a, let's say a messier, but far more engaging conversation. Do you feel that we we need to allow for more that five and a half minutes in um, our in the way, or do we, or does it have to be as efficient as as effective as you know, so on, and human? Um, it, it's bizarre to me how much we now seem to think that. Um, I mean, if an alien came down to Earth these days and they spent some time in Silicon Valley, they'd presume that human beings don't really like being alive that much. And that anything that's human is inefficient. And they, they'd sort of conclude that we should probably all get to about the age of nine and then kill ourselves because everything else is a waste of energy. Um, it's, uh, it's odd to me how we've let ourselves be persuaded somehow that every moment is there to be kind of maximized, and that everything that makes you feel something is inefficient. And, um, you know, there are obviously times when we're running late for a meeting. Sure. Uh, we need to get there as soon as possible. There are times when we're just a bit overwhelmed and we want to be by ourselves and think. Uh, there are times when we want to talk to um, the person that we're spending time with. So every every situation is different. But but broadly speaking, it would horrify me uh, how we default to thinking, oh, God, you know, whenever someone talks to us in a situation like that. Um, and I think somehow we need to to sort of open up a little bit um, it's a very kind of pathetic little scenario, but in my uh, building where I live in New York, we used to have two elevators that were quite fast. And for whatever reason, they're refurbishing the lobby. So we now all have to use one elevator, which is incredibly slow. Hmm. Um, it's mind-bollowingly slow. And in the uh, year before the renovations, um, I knew one person in the building very slightly because it's New York and people don't really talk to each other. And ever since the uh, the kind of lift was changed, we now talk to each other all the time. And rather than getting in the elevator and whipping out your phone, um, everyone has calculated that it's slightly too long and slightly too slow um, for that to be appropriate. Because actually to just look at your phone for two and a half minutes um, around a stranger who lives in your building is very rude. To do it for a minute is fine. Um, and as a result, we've all just started talking to each other and people know more about each other's lives. And there's actually like a feeling of togetherness that's being created. And, uh, you know, for the first month, everyone moaned about it. And then we realized that what we had in common is that we were all moaning about it. 
And then you one wonders why we're in such a hurry to get to our own apartments to be by ourselves when actually maybe maybe the elevator was the highlight of the day. <laughs> I love that thought. It's it's not at all anecdotal. It, yeah, it's a sort it, of allegory almost, but also true. I mean, I, I see a short film coming <laughs> in a hurry, Tom. You, you meant you used the word friction before. Yeah. And somehow, let's talk about luxury for a second. Yeah. Luxury is uh, Concorde, fast, you know, the most efficient, the, the most e- e- extraordinary, but it's also slow time. So it's the 17 course meal for, you know, hundreds of dollars uh, served deliciously with great attention to everything. So it's it's not being done fast and slopped down on your plate. So the opposite. Somehow this notion of the five and a half minutes of the taxi ride with the practicing or the no longer practicing doctor or that elevator ride, which, which, um, you know, it was, it was a nuisance, but then turns into a benefit. There's like that notion of, of no pain, no gain. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, luxury is a fascinating area and to think about how it's changing and also how it's really, really not changing is extremely Hmm. interesting. Uh, we used to talk a lot, I did quite a lot of work with LVMH and we used to talk quite a lot about high tech versus high touch. Um, and this was at the time when Burberry was doing quite a lot of stuff with iPads. So the idea was that you'd walk into a Burberry and someone would know who you are and address you by name. And I always felt that that was a terrible experience because it felt very disingenuous. Like you kind of want someone to know your name because they remembered you. And the moment that you know it's happened because of technology, it completely removes from that process. Um, so these things are very complicated. Like there, I, I um, I'm lucky, and I spend a lot of time in quite posh hotels, but I also spend time in quite cheap hotels as well. And when I am in a posh hotel, it's um, it's odd to me how they always assume that I want someone to take me to my room and sort of show me how to use a a, a light switch and there's the kind of the gesture of the endless pillows on a bed. Uh, and there's the kind of obsequiousness of service. And it makes me realize that that's not luxury for me at all. Like luxury for me is that I walk in and I just sit on a sofa and someone brings me my room key because they've remembered my credit card details that I've already told them. Um, for me, luxury would be that they use facial recognition to kind of see me entering and, you know, that process starts soon. Um, facial recognition yeah, yeah and obviously there's a whole privacy conversation there um but there are also be times where i wake up the next day and you come down and you actually want to have a really really long chat with with a few people about things to do in the area so these things are unbelievably complex and the more we can get used to not saying things like friction is bad or personalization is bad or facial recognition is bad or everything should be as fast as it can be like we everything is very contextual Hmm. Last question for you, Tom, before I let you go. Asia. Um, many people saying, you know, everything's happening in Asia, AI, 5G, uh, robotics in Japan. What's your spin today? Uh, let's say containing it to the marketing world. To what extent do you see marketing trends and influences moving towards Asia? Ooh, um. What is most interesting about Asia to me is that they never really had the interim. I mean, obviously it depends on different countries and um, Asia is incredibly complex and fragmented and wonderful 
um, like half of the world that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm expecting a one sentence wrap up <laughs> sorry. Tommy damn sorry. it uh, sorry um, so we, if, we, if we find that well, what's amazing is that they never had the interim so there's no shopping malls that got built that then got knocked down in China there's no TV sets that used to be cathode ray tubes that then got taken to the dump in Shenzhen like they, they constructed everything for now so all their airports are brand new many of their public transportation systems are new um, there is not the assumption that old people can't use QR codes and what is most interesting for me is not so much that things are happening faster there although they probably are is that they don't have to wipe away any memories so there's no changes of behavior that goes on there's just building new behaviors so you look at mobile commerce you look at QR codes you look at um, 5g systems being installed like often they're able to make such rapid progress because they can leapfrog over all the mistakes that we made. And that's what I find fascinating. Mm. Brilliant. Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Um, good luck getting your book uh, to the next stage. Um, I look forward to following you on that. And, and thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts. How can someone follow you best, track you down? What's the best way? Uh, it's just kind of two ways. So one, LinkedIn, I tend to be a bit more proper. So I, I don't tend to kind of over post on LinkedIn. I try and think a little bit about what I'm going to say. Um, so I think I'm Tom F. Goodwin on LinkedIn. I think I'm the same on Twitter. But on Twitter, it just tends to be a kind of random thought stream. And that might not appeal to everyone. Well, their choice then. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> and looking forward to hanging out with you some uh... It's great for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Stranger tucked around me, Chris.
precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.